Part Four of the Status Civilization by Robert Sheckley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Part Four of the Status Civilization by Robert Sheckley. Chapter Sixteen. Authorities on Omega agree that a hunted man experiences a change of character. If he were able to look upon the hunt as an abstract problem, he might arrive at certain more or less valid conclusions. But the typical hunted, no matter how great his intelligence, cannot divorce emotion from reasoning. After all, he is being hunted. He becomes panic-stricken. Safety seems to lie in distance and depth. He goes as far from home as possible. He goes deep into the ground along the subterranean maze of sewers and conduits. He chooses darkness instead of light, empty places in preference to crowded ones. This behavior is well known to experienced hunters. Quite naturally, they look first in the dark, empty places, in the underground passageways, in deserted stores and buildings. Here they find and flush the hunted with inexorable precision. Berent had thought about this. He had discarded his first instinct, which was to hide in the intricate tetrahyde cloaca. Instead, an hour before dawn, he went directly to the large, brightly lighted building that housed the Ministry of Games. When the corridors seemed to be deserted, he entered quickly, read the directory, and climbed the stairs to the third floor. He passed a dozen office doors, and finally stopped at the one marked Norin's J, Sub-Minister of Games. He listened for a moment, then opened the door and stepped in. There was nothing wrong with old Jay's reflexes. Before Berant was through the doorway, the old man had spotted the crimson hunt marks on his face. Jay opened a drawer and reached into it. Berant had no desire to kill the old man. He flung the government-issue needlebeam at Jay and caught him full on the forehead. Jay staggered back against the wall, then collapsed to the floor. Bending over him, Berent found that his pulse was strong. He bound and gagged the sub-minister and pushed him out of sight under his desk. Hunting through the drawers, he found a conference, do not disturb sign. He hung this outside the door and locked it. With his own needle-beam drawn, he sat down behind the desk and awaited events. Dawn came, and a watery sun rose over Omega. From the window, Berent could see the streets filled with people. There was a hectic carnival atmosphere in the city, and the noise of the holiday celebration was punctuated by the occasional hiss of a beamer or the flat explosion of a projectile weapon. By noon, Berent was still undetected. He looked through windows and found that he had access to the roof. He was glad to have an exit, just as Jay had suggested. By mid-afternoon, Jay had recovered consciousness. After struggling with his bonds for a while, he lay quietly under the desk. Just before evening, someone knocked at the door. Minister Jay, may I come in? Not at the moment, Brent said in what he hoped was a fair imitation of Jay's voice. I thought you'd be interested in the statistics of the hunt, the man said. So far, citizens have killed twenty-three hunteds with eighteen left to go. That's quite an improvement over last year. Yes, it is. Berent said. 
The percentage who hid in the sewer system was larger this year. A few tried to bluff it out by staying in their homes. We're tracking down the rest in the usual places. Excellent, said Berendt. None have made the break so far, the man said. Strange that hunteds rarely think of it, but of course it saves us from having to use the machines. Berendt wondered what the man was talking about. The break? Where was there to break to, and how would machines be used? We're already selecting alternates for the games, the man added. I'd like to have your approval of the list. Use your own judgment, Berendt said. Yes, sir, the man said. In a moment, Berendt heard his footsteps moving down the hall. He decided that the man had become suspicious. The conversation had lasted too long. He should have broken it off earlier. Perhaps he should move to a different office. Before he could do anything, there was a heavy pounding at the door. Yes? Citizen Search Committee, a bass voice answered. Kindly open the door. We have reason to believe that a hunted is hiding in there. Nonsense, Berendt said. You can't come in. This is a government office. We can, the bass voice said. No room, office, or building is closed to a citizen on hunt day. Are you opening up? Berendt had already moved to the window. He opened it and heard behind him the sound of men hammering at the door. He fired through the door twice to give them something to think about. Then he climbed out through the window. The rooftops of Tetrahyde, Berendt saw at once, looked like a perfect place for a hunted. Therefore, they were the last place a hunted should be. The maze of closely connected roofs, chimneys, and spires seemed made to order for a chase, but men were already on the roofs. They shouted when they saw him. Berendt broke into a sprint. Hunters were behind him, and others were closing in from the sides. He leaped a five-foot gap between buildings, managed to hold his balance on a steeply pitched roof, and scrambled around the side. Panic gave him speed. He was leaving the hunters behind. If he could keep up the pace for another ten minutes, he would have a substantial lead. He might be able to leave the roofs and find a better place for concealment. Another five-foot gap between buildings came up. Berendt leaped it without hesitation. He landed well, but his right foot went completely through rotted shingles, burying itself to the hip. He braced himself and pulled, trying to extricate his leg, but he couldn't get a purchase on the steep, crumbling roof. There he is! Berendt wrenched at the shingles with both hands. The hunters were almost within needle-beam distance. By the time he got his leg out, he would be an easy target. He had ripped a three-foot hole in the roof by the time the hunters appeared on the next building. Berendt pulled his leg free, then, seeing no alternative, he jumped into the hole. For a second he was in the air, then he landed feet first on a table which collapsed under him, spilling him to the floor. He got up and saw that he was in a Haji-class living room. An old woman sat in a rocking chair less than three feet away. Her jaw was slack with terror. She kept on rocking automatically. Berendt heard the hunters crossing to the roof. He went through the kitchen and out the back door, under a tangle of clotheslines and through a small hedge. Someone fired at him from a second-story window. Looking up, he saw a young boy trying to aim a heavy heat-beamer. His father had probably forbidden him to hunt in the streets. Berendt turned into a street and sprinted until he reached an alley. It looked familiar. He realized that he was in the mutant quarter, not far from Mila's house. He could hear the cries of the hunters behind him. 
He reached Myla's house and found the door unlocked. They were all together, the one-eyed man, the bald woman, and Myla. They showed no surprise at his entrance. So they picked you in the lottery, the old man said. Well, it's what we expected. Barrent asked, did Myla scren it in the water? There was no need to, the old man said. It was quite predictable, considering the sort of person you are. Bold, but not ruthless. That's your trouble, Barrent. The old man had dropped the obligatory form of address for a privileged citizen, and that, under the circumstances, was predictable, too. I've seen it happen year after year, the old man said. You'd be surprised how many promising young men like yourself end up in this room out of breath, holding a needle-beam as though it weighed a ton, with hunters three minutes behind them. They expect us to help them, but mutants like to stay out of trouble. Shut up, Dem, the old woman said. I guess we have to help you, Dem said. Myla's decided on it for reasons of her own. He grinned sardonically. Her mother and I told her she was wrong, but she insisted, and since she's the only one of us who can scren, we must let her have her own way. Myla said, Even with helping you, there's very little chance that you'll live through the hunt. If I'm killed, Barrett said, how will your prediction come true? Remember, you saw me looking at my own corpse, and it was in shiny fragments. I remember, Myla said. But your death won't affect the prediction. If it doesn't happen to you in this lifetime, it will simply catch up to you in a different incarnation." Barrent was not comforted. He asked, "'What should I do?' The old man handed him an armful of rags. "'Put these on, and I'll go to work on your face. You, my friend, are going to become a mutant.' In a short time Barrent was back on the street. He was dressed in rags. Beneath them he was holding his needle-beam, and in his free hand was a begging cup. The old man had worked lavishly with a pinkish-yellow plastic. Barrent's face was now monstrously swollen at the forehead, and his nose was flat and spread out almost to the cheekbones. The shape of his face had been altered, and the livid hunt marks were hidden. A detachment of hunters raced past, barely giving him a glance. Barrent began to feel more hopeful. He had gained valuable time. The last light of Omega's watery sun was disappearing below the horizon. Night would give him additional opportunities, and with any luck he could elude the hunters until dawn. After that were the games, of course, but Barrent wasn't planning on taking part in them. If his disguise was good enough to protect him from an entire hunting city, there was no reason why he should be captured for the games. Perhaps after the holiday was over he could appear again in Omegan society. Quite possibly, if he managed to survive the hunt and altogether escape the games, he would be especially rewarded. Such a presumptuous and successful breaking of the law would have to be rewarded. He saw another group of hunters coming toward him. There were five in the group, and with them was Tem Rend, looking somber and proud in his new assassin's uniform. You, one of the hunters shouted, have you seen a quarry pass this way? No, citizen. Barrent said, bowing his head respectfully, his needle-beam ready under his rags. "'Don't believe him,' a man said. "'These damned mutants never tell us a thing.' "'Come on, we'll find him,' another man said. The group moved away, but Tem Rend stayed behind. "'You sure you haven't seen one of the hunted go by here?' Rend asked. "'Positive, citizen,' Barrent said, wondering if Rend had recognized him. 
He didn't want to kill him. In fact, he wasn't sure he could, for Wren's reflexes were uncannily fast. Right now, Wren's needle-beam was hanging loosely from his hand, while Barentz was already aimed. That split-second advantage might cancel out Wren's superior speed and accuracy, but if it came to conclusions, Barentz thought it would probably be a tie, in which case they would more than likely kill each other. Well, Wren said, if you do see any of the hunted, tell them not to disguise themselves as mutants. Why not? That trick never works for long, Wren said evenly. It gives a man about an hour's grace. Then the informers spot him. Now, if I were being hunted, I might use mutant's disguise, but I wouldn't just sit on a curbstone with it. I'd make a break out of tetrahyde. You would? Most certainly. A few hunteds every year escape into the mountains. The officials won't talk about it, of course, and most citizens don't know, but the Assassin's Guild keeps complete records of every trick, device, and escape ever used. It's part of our business." That's very interesting, Barent said. He knew that Rand had seen through his disguise. Tem was being a good neighbor, though a bad assassin. Of course, Wren said, it isn't easy to get out of the city, and once a man's out, that doesn't mean he's clear. There are hunter patrols to watch out for, and even worse than that. Wren stopped abruptly. A group of hunters were coming toward them. Wren nodded pleasantly and walked off. After the hunters had passed, Barent got up and started walking. Wren had given him good advice. Of course, some men would escape from the city. Life in Omega's barren mountains would be extremely difficult, but any difficulty was better than death. If he were able to get by the city gate, he would have to watch for the hunting patrols. And Tem had mentioned something worse. Barent wondered what that was. Special mountain-trained hunters, perhaps? Omega's unstable climate? Deadly flora and fauna? He wished Rend had been able to finish the sentence. By nightfall he had reached the south gate. Bent painfully over, he hobbled toward the guard detachment that blocked his way out. Chapter 17 There was no trouble with the guards. Whole families of mutants were streaming out of the city, seeking the protection of the mountains until the frenzy of the hunt was over. Barent attached himself to one of these groups, and soon he found himself a mile past Tetrahyde, in the low foothills that curled in a semicircle around the city. The mutants stopped here and made their camp. Barent went on, and by midnight he was starting up the rocky, windswept slope of one of the higher mountains. He was hungry, but the cool, clear air was exhilarating. He began to believe that he really would live through the hunt. He heard a noisy group of hunters making a sweep around the mountain. He avoided them easily in the darkness and continued climbing. Soon there was no sound except for the steady rush of wind across the cliffs. It was perhaps two in the morning, only three more hours until dawn. In the small hours of the morning it began to rain, lightly at first, then in a cold torrent. This was predictable weather for Omega. Predictable also were the towering thunderheads that formed over the mountains, the rolling thunder, and the vivid yellow flashes of lightning. Barent found shelter in a shallow cave and counted himself lucky that the temperature had not yet plunged. He sat in the cave, half dozing, the remnants of his makeup running down his face, 
keeping a sleepy watch over the slope of the mountain below him. Then, in the brilliant illumination of a lightning flash, he saw something moving up the slope, heading directly towards his cave. He stood up, the needle-beam ready, and waited for another lightning flash. It came, and now he could see the cold, wet gleam of metal, a flashing of red and green lights, a pair of metal tentacles taking grips on the rocks and small shrubs in the mountainside. It was a machine similar to the one Barrent had fought in the cellars of the Department of Justice. Now he knew what Rend had wanted to warn him about, and he could see why few of the hunted escaped, even if they got beyond the city itself. This time Max would not be operating at random to make a more equal contest out of it, and there would be no exposed fuse-box. As Max came within range, Barrent fired. The blast bounced harmlessly off the machine's armored hide. Barrent left the shelter of his cave and began to climb. The machine came steadily behind him, up the treacherous, wet face of the mountain. Barrent tried to lose it on a plateau of jagged boulders, but Max couldn't be shaken. Barrent realized that the machine must be following a scent of some kind. Probably it was keyed to follow the indelible paint on Barrent's face. On a steep face of the mountain, Barrent rolled boulders onto the machine, hoping he could start an avalanche. Max dodged most of the flying rocks and let the rest bounce off him with no visible effect. At last Barrent was backed into a narrow, steep-sided angle of cliff. He was unable to climb any higher. He waited. When the machine loomed over him, he held the needlebeam against its metal hide and held down the trigger. Max shuddered for a moment under the impact of the needlebeam's full charge. Then it brushed the weapon away and wrapped a tentacle around Barrent's neck. The metal coils tightened. Barrent felt himself losing consciousness. He had time to wonder whether the coils would strangle him or break his neck. Suddenly the pressure was gone. The machine had backed away a few feet. Past it, Barrent could see the first gray light of dawn. He had lived through the hunt. The machine was not programmed to kill him after dawn, but it wouldn't let him go. It kept him captive in the narrow angle of the cliff until the hunters came. They brought Barrent back to Tetrahyde, where a wildly applauding crowd gave him a hero's welcome. After a two-hour procession, Barrent and four other survivors were taken to the office of the awards committee. The chairman made a short and moving speech about the skill and courage each had shown in surviving the hunt. He gave each of them the rank of Haji, and presented them with the tiny golden earrings which showed their status. At the end of the ceremony, the chairman wished each of the new Hajis an easy death in the games. Chapter 18 Guards led Barrent from the office of the awards committee. He was brought past a row of dungeons under the arena and locked into a cell. The guards told him to be patient. The games had already begun, and his turn would come soon. There were nine men crammed into a cell which had been built to hold three. Most of them sat or sprawled in complete and silent apathy, already resigned to their deaths. But one of them was definitely not resigned. He pushed his way to the front of the cell as Barrent entered. Joe! The little credit thief grinned at him. A sad place to meet, Will. What happened to you? Politics, Joe said. It's a dangerous business on Omega, especially during the time of the games. I thought I was safe, but... He shrugged his shoulders. I was selected for the games this morning. Is 
there any chance of getting out of it? There's a chance, Joe said. I told your girl about you, so perhaps her friends can do something. As for me, I'm expecting a reprieve. Is that possible? Barrent asked. Anything is possible. It's better not to hope for it, though. What are the games like? Barrent asked. They're the sort of thing you'd expect, Joe said. Man-to-man combats, battles against various types of Omegan flora and fauna, needlebeam and heat-gun duels. It's all copied from an old Earth festival, I'm told. And if anyone survives, Barrent said, they're beyond the law? That's right. But what does it mean to be beyond the law? I don't know, Joe said. Nobody seems to know much about that. All I could find out is survivors of the games are taken by the Black One. It's not supposed to be pleasant. I can understand that. The very little on Omega is pleasant. It isn't a bad place, Joe said. You just haven't the proper spirit of— He was interrupted by the arrival of a detachment of guards. It was time for the occupants of Barent's cell to enter the arena. No reprieve, Barent said. Well, that's how it goes. Joe said. They were marched out under heavy guard and lined up at the iron door that separated the cell block from the main arena. Just before the captain of the guards opened the door, a fat, well-dressed man came hurrying down a side corridor, waving a paper. "'What's this?' the captain of the guards asked. "'A writ of recognizance,' the fat man said, handing his paper to the captain. "'On the other side you'll find a cease-and-desist order.' He pulled more papers out of his pockets. And here is a bankruptcy transferal notice, a, a chattel mortgage, a writ of habeas corpus, and a salary attachment. The captain pushed back his helmet and scratched his narrow forehead. I can never understand what you lawyers are talking about. What does it mean? It releases him, the fat man said, pointing to Joe. The captain took the papers, gave them a single puzzled glance, and handed them to an aide. All right, he said. Take him with you. But it wasn't like this in the old days. Nothing stopped the orderly progression of the games. Grinning triumphantly, Joe stepped through the ranks of guards and joined the fat lawyer. He asked him, Do you have any papers for Will Barrent? None, the lawyer said. His case is in different hands. I'm afraid it might not be completely processed until after the games are over. But I'll probably be dead by then, Barrent said. That, I can assure you, won't stop the papers from being properly served," the fat lawyer said proudly. Dead or alive, you will retain all your rights. The captain of the guard said, All right, let's go. Luck, Joe called out, and then the line of prisoners had passed through the iron door into the glaring light of the arena. Barrent lived through the hand-to-hand duels in which a quarter of the prisoners were killed. After that, men armed with swords were matched against the deadlier Omegan fauna. The beasts they fought included the Hintolite and the Hintosed, big-jawed, heavy-armored monsters whose natural habitat was the desert region far to the south of Tetrahyde. Fifteen men later, these beasts were dead. Barent was matched with a Saunus, a flying black reptile from the western mountains. For a while he was hard-pressed by this ugly, poison-toothed creature, but in time he figured out a solution. He stopped trying to jab the Saunus's leathery hide and concentrated on severing its broad fan of tail-feathers. When he had succeeded, the Saunus's flying balance was thrown badly off. 
The reptile crashed into the high wall that separated the combatants from the spectators, and it was relatively easy to administer the final stroke through the Saunus's single huge eye. The vast and enthusiastic crowd in the stadium gave Barrent a lengthy round of applause. He moved back to the reserve pen and watched other men struggle against the trichomatreds, incredibly fast little creatures the size of rats, with the dispositions of rabid wolverines. It took five teams of prisoners. After a brief interlude of hand-to-hand -hand dueling, the arena was cleared again. Now the hard-shelled creatin amphibians lumbered in. Although sluggish in disposition, the creatins were completely protected beneath several inches of shell. Their narrow, whiplash tails, which also served them as antennae, were invariably fatal to any man who approached them. Barrent had to fight one of these after it had dispatched four of his fellow prisoners. He had watched the earlier combats carefully and had detected the one place where the creatin antennae could not reach. Barrent waited for his chance and jumped for the center of the creatin's broad back. When the shell split into a gigantic mouth, for this was the creatin method of feeding, Barrent jammed his sword into the opening. The creatin expired with gratifying promptness, and the crowd signified its approval by showering the arena with cushions. The victory left Barrent standing alone on the blood-stained sand. The rest of the prisoners were either dead or too badly maimed to fight. Barrent waited, wondering what beast the games committee had chosen next. A single tendril shot up through the sand, and then another. Within seconds a short, thick tree was growing in the arena, sending out more roots and tendrils and pulling all flesh, living or dead, into five small feeding mouths which circled the base of the trunk. This was the carrion tree, indigenous to the northeastern swamps and imported with great difficulty. It was said to be highly vulnerable to fire, but Barrent had no fire available. Using his sword, two-handed, Barrent lopped off vines. Others grew in their place. He worked with frantic speed to keep the vines from surrounding him. His arms were becoming tired, and the tree regenerated faster than he could cut it down. There seemed no way of destroying it. His only hope lay in the tree's slow movements. These were fast enough, but nothing compared with human musculature. Barrent ducked out of a corner in which the creeping vines were trapping him. Another sword was lying twenty yards away, half buried in the sand. Barrent reached it and heard warning shouts from the crowd. He felt a vine close around his ankles. He hacked at it, and other vines coiled around his waist. He dug his heels into the sand and clashed the swords together, trying to produce a spark. On his first try, the sword in his right hand broke in half. Barrent picked up the halves and kept on trying as the vines dragged him closer to the feeding mouths. A shower of sparks flew from the clanging steel. One of them touched a vine. With incredible suddenness, the vine burst into flames. The flames spurted down the length of the vine to the main tree system. The five mouths moaned as the fire leaped toward them. If matters had been left to continue, Barrent would have been burned to death, for the arena was nearly filled with the highly combustible vines. But the flames were endangering the wooden walls of the arena. The Tetrahyde Guard Detachment put the fire out in time to save both Barrent and the spectators. Swaying with exhaustion, Barrent stood in the center of the arena, wondering what would be used next against him. But nothing happened. 
After a moment a signal was made from the President's box, and the crowd roared in applause. The games were over. Barrent had survived. Still, no one left his seat. The audience was waiting to see the final disposition of Barrent, who had passed beyond the law. He heard a low, reverent gasp from the crowd. Turning quickly, Barrent saw a fiery dot of light appear in mid-air. It swelled, threw out streamers of light, and gathered them in again. It grew rapidly, too brilliant to look upon, and Barrent remembered Uncle Ingemar saying to him, Sometimes the Black One rewards us by appearing in the awful beauty of his fiery flesh. Yes, nephew, I have actually been privileged to see him. Two years ago he appeared at the games, and he also appeared the year before that. The dot became a red and yellow globe about twenty feet in diameter, its lowest curve not quite touching the ground. It grew again. The center of the globe became thinner. A waste appeared, and above the waste the globe turned an impenetrable black. It was two globes now, one brilliant, one dark, joined by a narrow waste. As Barrent watched, the dark globe lengthened and changed into the unforgettable horn-headed shape of the Dark One. Barrent tried to run, but the huge black-headed figure swept forward and engulfed him. He was trapped in a blinding swirl of radiance, with darkness above it. The light bored into his head, and he tried to scream. Then he passed out. Chapter 19 Barrent recovered consciousness in a dim, high-ceilinged room. He was lying on a bed. Two people were standing nearby. They seemed to be arguing. There simply isn't any more time to wait, a man was saying. You fail to appreciate the urgency of the situation. The doctor said he needs at least another three days of rest. It was a woman's voice. After a moment, Barrent realized that Moira was speaking. He can have three days. And he needs time for indoctrination. You told me he was bright. The indoctrination shouldn't take long. It might take weeks. Impossible. The ship lands in six days. Elan, Moira said, you're trying to move too fast. We, we can't do it this time. On the next landing day we will be much better prepared. The situation will be out of hand by then, the man said. I'm sorry, Moira. We have to use Barrent immediately, or not use him at all. Barrent said, Use me for what? Where am I? Who are you? The man turned to the bed. In the faint light, Barrent saw a very tall, thin, stooped old man with a wispy mustache. I'm glad you're awake, he said. My name is Swen Elan. I'm in command of Group Two. What's Group Two? Barrent asked. How did you get me out of the arena? Are you agents of the Black One? Elan grinned. Not exactly agents. We'll explain everything to you shortly. First, I think you'd better have something to eat and drink. A nurse brought in a tray. While Barrent ate, Elan pulled up a chair and told Barrent about the Black One. Our group, Elan said, can't claim to have started the religion of evil. That appears to have sprung up spontaneously on Omega. But since it was there, we have made occasional use of it. The priests have been remarkably cooperative. After all, the worshippers of evil set a high positive value upon corruption. Therefore, in the eyes of an Omegan priest, the appearance of a fraudulent black one is not anathema. Quite the contrary, 
for in the orthodox worship of evil a great deal of emphasis is put upon false images, especially if they are big, fiery, impressive images like the one which rescued you from the arena. How did you produce that? Barrent asked. It has to do with friction surfaces and planes of force, Elon said. You'd have to ask our engineers for more details. Why did you rescue me? Barrent asked. Elan glanced at Moira, who shrugged her shoulders, looking uncomfortable. Elan said, We'd like to use you for an important job. But before I tell you about it, I think you should know something about our organization. Certainly you must have some curiosity about us. A great deal, Barrent said. Are you some kind of criminal elite? We're an elite, Elan said, but we don't consider ourselves criminal. Two entirely different types of people have been sent to Omega. There are the true criminals, guilty of murder, arson, armed robbery, and the like. Those are the people you lived among. And there are the people guilty of deviational crimes, such as political unreliability, scientific unorthodoxy, and irreligious attitudes. These people compose our organization, which, for the purposes of identification, we call Group Two. As far as we can remember and reconstruct, our crimes were largely a matter of holding different opinions from those which prevailed upon Earth. We were nonconformists. We probably constituted an unstable element and a threat to the entrenched powers. Therefore, we were deported to Omega. And you separated yourselves from the other deportees? Barrent said. Yes, necessarily. For one thing, the true criminals of Group One are not readily controllable. We couldn't lead them, nor could we allow ourselves to be led by them. But more important than that, we had a job to do that could only be performed in secrecy. We had no idea what devices the guard ships employed to watch the surface of Omega. To keep our security intact, we went underground, literally. The room you're in is about two hundred feet below the surface. We stay out of sight except for special agents like Moira, who separate the political and social prisoners who belong in Group Two from the others. You didn't separate me, Barrent said. Of course not. You were allegedly guilty of murder, which puts you in Group One. However, your behavior was not typical of Group One. You seemed like good potential material for us, so we helped you from time to time, but we had to be sure of you before taking you into the group. Your repudiation of the murder charge was strongly in your favor. Also, we questioned Elardi after you had located him. There seemed no reason to doubt that he performed the murder you were charged with. Even more strongly in your favor were your high survival qualities, which had their ultimate test in the hunt and the games. We were badly in need of a man of your abilities. Just what is your work? Barrent asked. What do you want to accomplish? We want to go back to Earth, Elon said. But that's impossible. We don't think so, Elon said. We've given the matter considerable study. In spite of the guard ships, we think it's possible to return to Earth. We'll find out for certain in six days when the breakout must be made. Moira said, It would be better to wait another six months. Impossible. A six-month's delay would be ruinous. Every society has a purpose, and the criminal population of Omega is bent upon its own self-destruction. Barrent, you look surprised. Couldn't you see that? I never thought about it, Barrent said. After all, I was part of it. 
It's self-evident, Elon said. Consider the institutions, all centered around legalized murder. The holidays are excuses for mass murders. Even the law which governs the rate of murder is beginning to break down. The population lives near the edge of chaos, and rightfully so. There's no longer any security. The only way to live is to kill. The only way to rise in status is to kill. The only safe thing is to kill. More and more. Faster and faster. You exaggerate, Moira said. I don't think so. I realize that there seems to be a certain permanence to Omegan institutions, a certain inherent conservatism even to murder, but it's an illusion. I have no doubt that all dying societies projected their illusion of permanence right up to the end. Well, the end of Omegan society is rapidly approaching. How soon? Barrent asked. An explosion point will be reached in about four months, Elon said. The only way to change that would be to give the population a new direction, a different cause. Earth, Barrent said. Exactly. That's why the attempt must be made immediately. Well, I don't know much about it, Barrent said, but I'll go along with you. I'll gladly be part of any expedition. Elon looked uncomfortable again. I suppose I haven't made myself clear, he said. You are going to be the expedition, Brent. You and only you. Forgive me if I've startled you. Chapter 20 According to Elon, Group 2 had at least one serious flaw. The men who composed it were, for the most part, past their physical prime. There were some younger members, of course, but they had little contact with violence and little chance to develop traits of self-sufficiency. Secure in the underground, most of them had never fired a beamer in anger, had never even been forced to run for their lives, had never encountered the make-or-break situations through which Barrent had lived. They were brave, but unproven. They would willingly undertake the expedition to Earth, but they would have little chance of success. And you think I would have a chance? Barrent asked. I think so. You're young and strong, reasonably intelligent, and extremely resourceful. You have a high survival quotient. If any man could succeed, I believe you could. Why one man? Because there's no sense in sending a group. The chance of detection would simply be increased. By using one man, we get maximum security and opportunity. If you succeed, we will receive valuable information about the nature of the enemy. If you don't succeed, if you are captured, your attempt will be considered the action of an individual rather than a group. We will still be free to start a general uprising from Omega. How am I supposed to get back to Earth? Barrent asked. Do you have a starship hidden away somewhere? I'm afraid not. We plan to transport you to Earth aboard the next prison ship. That's impossible. Not at all. We've studied the landings. They follow a pattern. The prisoners are marched out, accompanied by the guards. While they're assembled in the square, the ship itself is undefended, although loosely surrounded by a cordon of guards. To get you aboard, we will start a disturbance. It should take away the guards' attention long enough for you to get on board. Even if I succeed, I'll be captured as soon as the guards return. You shouldn't be, Elon said. The prison ship is an immense structure with many hiding places for a stowaway, and the element of surprise will be in your favor. 
This may be the first time in the history of Omega that an escape has been attempted. And when the ship reaches Earth? You will be disguised as a member of the ship's personnel, Elon said. Remember, the inevitable inefficiency of a huge bureaucracy will be working for you. I hope so, Barrent said. Let's suppose I reach Earth safely and get the information you want. How do I send it back? You send it back on the next prison ship, Elon said. We plan to capture that one. Barrent rubbed his forehead wearily. What makes you think that any of this, my expedition or your uprising, can succeed against an organization as powerful as Earth? We have to take the chance, Elon said. Take it or go down in a bloody shambles with the rest of Omega. I agree that the odds are weighted against us, but our choice is either to make the attempt or to die without making any attempt at all. Moira nodded at this. Also, the situation has other possibilities. The government of Earth is obviously repressive. That argues the existence of underground resistance groups on Earth itself. You may be able to contact those groups. A revolt both here and on Earth would give the government something to think about. Maybe, Barrent said. We have to hope for the best, Elon said. Are you with us? Certainly, Barrent said. I'd rather die on Earth than on Omega. The prison ship lands in six days, Elon said. During that time, we will give you the information we have about Earth. Part of it is memory reconstruction, part has been screnned by the mutants, and the rest is logical constructs. It's all we have, and I think it gives a reasonably accurate picture of current conditions on Earth. How soon do we start? Barrent asked. Right now, Elan said. Barrent received a general briefing on the physical makeup of Earth, its climate, and major population centers. Then he was sent to Colonel Bray, formerly of the Earth Deep Space Establishment. Bray talked to him about the probable military strength of Earth as represented by the number of guardships around Omega and their apparent level of scientific development. He gave estimates of the size of the Earth forces, their probable divisions into land, sea, and space groups, their assumed level of efficiency. An aide, Captain Carell, lectured on special weapons, their probable types and ranges, their availability to the general Earth population. Another aide, Lieutenant Dowd, talked about detection devices, their probable locations, and how to avoid them. Then Barrent was turned back to Elan for political indoctrination. From him, Barrent learned that Earth was believed to be a dictatorship. He learned the methods of a dictatorship, its peculiar strengths and weaknesses, the role of the secret police, the use of terror, the problems of informers. When Elan was finished with him, Barrent went to a small, beady-eyed man who lectured on Earth's memory-destroying system. Using the premise that memory destruction was regularly employed to render opposition ineffective, the man went on to construct the probable nature of an underground movement on Earth given those circumstances, and how Barrent might contact them, and what the underground's capabilities might be. Finally, he was given the full details of Group Two's plan for getting him on board the ship. When landing day came, Barrent felt a definite sense of relief. He was heartily sick of day and night cramming. Any sort of action would seem an improvement. Chapter 21 Barrent watched the huge prison ship maneuver into position and sink noiselessly to the ground. It gleamed dully in the afternoon sun, tangible proof of Earth's long reach and powerful grasp. 
A hatch opened and a landing stage was let down. The prisoners, flanked by guards, marched down and assembled in the square. As usual, most of the population of Tetrahyde had gathered to watch and cheer the disembarkation ceremony. Barrent moved through the crowd and stationed himself behind the ranks of prisoners and guards. He touched his pocket to make sure the needle-beam was still there. It had been made for him by Group Two fabricators, completely of plastic, to escape any metal detectors. The rest of his pockets were stuffed with equipment. He hoped he wouldn't have to use any of it. The loudspeaker voice began to read off the prisoners' numbers, as it had when Barrent had disembarked. He listened, knees slightly bent, waiting for the beginning of the diversion. The loudspeaker voice was coming to the end of the prisoner list. There were only ten left. Barrent edged forward. The voice droned on. Four prisoners left. Three. As the number of the last prisoner was announced, the diversion began. A black cloud of smoke darkened the pale sky, and Barrent knew that the group had set fire to the empty barracks in Square A, too. He waited. Then it came. There was a stupendous explosion blasting through two rows of empty buildings. The shock wave was staggering. Even before debris began to fall, Barrent was running toward the ship. The second and third explosions went off as he came into the ship's shadow. Quickly he stripped off his Omegan outer garments. Under them he wore a facsimile of guard's uniform. Now he ran toward the landing stage. The loudspeaker voice was calling loudly for order. The guards were still bewildered. The fourth explosion threw Barrent to the ground. He got to his feet instantly and sprinted up the landing stage. He was inside the ship. Outside he could hear the guard captain shouting orders. The guards were beginning to form into ranks, their weapons ready to use against the restive crowd. They were retreating to the ship in good order. Barrent had no more time to listen. He was standing in a long, narrow corridor. He turned to the right and raced toward the bow of the ship. Far behind him he could hear the heavy marching tread of the guards. Now, he thought, the information he had been given about the ship had better be right, or the expedition was finished before it began. He sprinted past rows of empty cells and came to a door marked Guard Assembly Room. A lighted green bulb above the door showed that the air system was on. He went by it and came to another door. Barrent tried it now and found it unlocked. Within was a room stacked high with spare engine parts. He entered and closed the door. The guards marched down the corridor. Barrent could hear them talking as they entered the assembly room. What do you think started those explosions? Who knows? Those prisoners are crazy, anyhow. They'd blow up the whole planet if they could. Good riddance. Well, it didn't cause any damage. There was an explosion like that about fifteen years ago, remember? I wasn't here then. Well, it was worse than this. Two guards were killed, and maybe a hundred prisoners. What started it? Don't know. These Omegans just enjoy blowing things up. Next thing you know, they'll be trying to blow us up. Not a chance. Not with the guard ships up there. You think so? Well, I'll be glad to get back to the checkpoint. You said it. Be good to get off this ship and live a little. It isn't a bad life at the checkpoint, but I'd rather go back to Earth. Well, you can't have everything. The last of the guards entered the assembly room and dogged the door shut. Barrent waited. 
After a while he felt the ship vibrate. It was beginning its departure. He had learned some valuable information. Apparently all or most of the guards got off at the checkpoint. Did that mean another detachment of guards got on? Probably. And a checkpoint implied that the ship was searched for escaped prisoners. It was probably only a perfunctory search, since no prisoner had escaped in the history of Omega. Still, he would have to figure out a way of avoiding it. But he would face that when the time came. Now he felt the vibrations cease, and he knew that the ship had left the surface of Omega. He was aboard, unobserved, and the ship was on its way to Earth. So far, everything had gone according to plan. For the next few hours, Barrent stayed in the storage room. He was feeling very tired, and his joints had begun to ache. The air in the small room had a sour, exhausted smell. Forcing himself to his feet, Barrent walked to the air vent and put his hand over it. No air was coming through. He took a small gauge out of his pocket. The oxygen content of the room was falling rapidly. Cautiously, he opened the storeroom door and peered out. Although he was dressed in a perfect replica of a guard's uniform, he knew he couldn't pass among men who knew each other so well. He had to stay in hiding, and he had to have air. The corridors were deserted. He passed the guard assembly room and heard faint murmurs of conversation inside. The green light glowed brightly over the door. Barrent walked on, beginning to feel the first signs of dizziness. His gauge showed him that the oxygen content in the corridor was starting to fall. The group had assumed that the air system would be used throughout the ship. Now Barrent could see that, with only guards and crew aboard, there was no need to supply air for the entire ship. There would be air in the little man-inhabited islands of the guardroom and the cruise section, and nowhere else. Barrent hurried down the dim, silent corridors, gasping for breath. The air was rapidly growing bad. Perhaps it was being used in the assembly room before the ship's main air supply was touched. He passed unlocked doors, but the green bulbs above them were unlighted. He had a pounding headache, and his legs felt as if they were turning to jelly. He tried to figure out a course of action. The cruise section seemed to offer him the best chance. Ship's personnel might not be armed. Even if they were, they would be less ready for trouble than the guards. Perhaps he could hold one of the officers at gunpoint. Perhaps he could take over the ship. It was worth trying. It had to be tried. At the end of the corridor he came to a staircase. He climbed past a dozen deserted levels and came at last to a stenciled sign on one of the walls. It read, Control Section, and an arrow pointed the way. Barrent took the plastic needlebeam out of his pocket and staggered down the corridor. He was beginning to lose consciousness. Black shadows formed and dissipated on the edges of his vision. He was experiencing vague hallucinations, flashes of horror in which he felt the corridor walls falling in on him. He found that he was on his hands and knees, crawling toward a door marked Control Room, no admittance except to ship's officers. The corridor seemed to be filled with gray fog. It cleared momentarily, and Barrent realized that his eyes were not focusing properly. He pulled himself to his feet and turned the door handle. It began to open. He took a firm grip on the needle beam and tried to prepare himself for action. But as the door opened, darkness closed irrevocably around him. He thought he could see startled faces, hear a voice shouting, Watch out! He's armed! And then the blackness closed in completely, and he fell endlessly forward.
End of Part 4 of The Status Civilization by Robert Sheckley.